morning, Southbridge. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, those of you in Theater 14, good morning. And I was telling first service, uh, sometimes it's funny to me when people come up to me after the message and say, I'm so glad you said, and they tell me something that I said, and I think, I never said that. And uh, I realize the Holy Spirit can say whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants. He can say it from the pages of Scripture that we're going to open up in a minute. He can say it through my words. He can say something specific right into your personal life that's going on. Uh, but just for a moment... I just want to pause, and I'm hoping he will say this to you, and I just want you to receive these words. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this, okay? God loves you, and God loves you more than you have any idea about. I don't know, those of you who are parents, you ever look at your kids and just think, I just wish you knew how much I love you. Uh, he loves you that much, and uh, I want you to know that today, that God loves you. Uh, difficult circumstances happen this week. God loves those people, and God loves you. Uh, and he loves each one of us, whatever's going on in your life. And I'm going to ask him to speak to us. He can say whatever he wants, but let's just bow our heads. We're going to continue our series we've been doing. Um, and let's just ask him to speak to us this morning. Father, we just ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, for some, maybe as simple as just telling them that you love them um, and drawing them to you. I pray if there are those that are dead to being able to even hear your words today, that you'd make them alive in your son Jesus today. And I pray for those that are um, in Connecticut that lost little ones today and have a lot of questions or wondering lots of things. God, I pray you'd speak into their hearts. I pray you'd comfort those families. I pray you'd speak to people that are here in Raleigh-Durham, coming from all over the triangle um, to church today. I pray that you'd speak to hearts uh, through your word, supernaturally, things that come out of my lips maybe, uh, things that maybe aren't even said, but you speak them um, through the pages of Scripture. God, will you just speak to us today? Open our hearts to you. Be our counselor, be our comforter, be our keeper. God, you are our Father, and we love you. And we pray that you'd speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been doing this series we've been calling Timely Christmas. And today I'm going to give you, I spent a couple minutes in review. So for those of you who've been here the last couple weeks, I'm going to say some stuff you've already heard. For those of you who haven't been around, I'm kind of bringing you up to speed because what we're going to do today is really part three and one long message from a few different passages. And when we started this series a couple weeks ago, we started talking about timing. And we talked about how when we think of timing, usually we think of timing in two categories. Good timing on one hand. And then bad timing, on the other hand. When we say good timing, most of us just know that means you said the right thing at the right time, you were in the right place at the right time, you did the right thing at the right time, that bad timing means the opposite of that, and that ultimately what we're talking about, whether it's good timing or bad timing, is we mean our desired outcome happened. So even if we say we said the right thing at the right time, that means it worked out the way we wanted it to work out in that given circumstance, or we were in the right place, all that stuff. And then bad timing is the opposite. In the first week, we talked about there's a third category of timing that works regardless of our desired outcome. It's God's timing. And we talked about how God's timing works according to his outcome. In every circumstance, he brings ultimately his desired outcome because his timing is perfect. And the passage of scripture that we looked at was Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. It's really the foundation for this whole series. It says, but God, two key words, that he's the one who works, he's the one who intervenes. But God, when the time had fully come, NIV says, or in the fullness of time, some of your translations say, at just the right time, and God's perfect timing, God sent his son. That's the Christmas story. That's the plan. Born of a woman was one of the circumstances, born under the law. And that first week we talked about really that first phrase. Uh, when the time had fully come, or in the fullness of time, at just the right time, at God's perfect time, and we saw that God's timing is perfect in every way. God's timing is perfect theologically. And we talked about how theologically his timing is perfect because people were excited about a Messiah, and at the same time they would murder the Messiah, which can make some of us scratch our heads. Now, if you know the whole story and you're familiar with that, you understand why he had to die, why he had to be murdered, but that's because we get to look back and read the story. 
Can you just imagine if you were living in those circumstances? Here's this guy, he's different. There's been all these signs, all these things the prophets said. It seems like he might really be the Messiah, and then he dies. How many of us would say to ourselves, that, that couldn't have been God's That's not God's plan. That's not what he wants. He wouldn't want that to happen. But ultimately, it was his perfect timing because he had to be murdered on the cross. If he wasn't murdered on the cross, he wouldn't have died for our sins. If he didn't die for our sins, then we'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins. We'd still be separated from God. Because what many of us fail to realize many times is we're at war with God because we continue to pursue what's opposite of him, which is sin, and we incur a debt against him. And that debt, the wages of that debt is separation from him. But Jesus Christ, through that death on the cross, paid that debt for us. We call it atonement, that he paid a debt for us so that we could be right with God. And so God's timing was perfect theologically. It was perfect historically. You can go back and listen to the message. And we talked about synagogue system and road system and language and all that stuff. It was perfect timing for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it was also perfect timing personally. Because not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his plan. And not a hair falls from our head. Every minute detail of our lives doesn't happen apart from his plan, apart from his control, apart from his perfect timing. And we talked about that really from God's perspective in Galatians chapter 4. But you read the second part of the verse, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, that Christmas story, the big picture, born of a woman. And last week we really focused in on that part of the phrase. And we went to the passage of scripture in Luke chapter 1 and talked about from that woman's perspective, really a young girl's perspective, a 13-year-old girl named Mary who finds out that she's having a baby. And we talked about from her perspective that God's timing, it doesn't mean it is, but it can be troubling. It's still perfect, but from our perspective, a lot of times God's timing can be troubling. And we talked about anytime his timing and our timing, they kind of miss each other. They don't line up. It can be good news. It can be bad news. It can be all kinds of different things. But anytime it's not the same, it can be troubling to us. We talked about after each message that his plan can be trusted. God's timing is perfect, so his plan can be trusted. And God's timing can be troubling, but his plan can still be trusted. It's kind of a theme that's going on there today. Or, and throughout this series. And today, we continue. And we talk about how God's timing is not only perfect, and it can be troubling, but it's always personal. And we're going to talk about today from the perspective of that young woman. She was pledged to be married in the passage we looked at last week in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the man she was pledged to be married to, a young man named Joseph, probably about 18 or 19 years old. And his story is in Matthew chapter 1. So last week we were in Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, which is the first book in the New Testament. So the first chapter of the first book in the New Testament, I invite you to turn with me to. If you have a copy of the scriptures or a Kindle or whatever it is you brought today, if you just go there, click there, whatever you need to do to get to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. And we're going to be talking about from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew's retelling the story here from Joseph's perspective. Luke tells it from Mary's. And I love Matthew uh, individually. I haven't met him personally. But uh, he's a guy that he understands God's grace. Uh, this is a guy, he was a tax collector. And uh, many of you uh, wouldn't like a tax collector if you met them in the lobby today. <laughs> Hi, who do you work for? The IRS. <laughs> hey, glad you're here. You need it. You know. See ya. Uh, we, don't, we don't like tax collectors, but they were more hated then. Because essentially, what um, a tax collector was then was like a fundraiser for a terrorist organization known as the Roman government that would come in and kill your family and people you loved, and you funded it through your taxes so you hated the guys who did this. They voluntarily decided to have this job and they'd steal money from you in the process. So everybody hated Matthew. But Jesus calls Matthew and calls him out of that life to come be one of his friends, come be one of his followers, come be one of the key guys that would spread the gospel and create this movement known as Christianity. And he'd write one of the most important documents ever written in human history, the Gospel of Matthew. 
It's in this document, in the first 17 verses, that we get the genealogy of Jesus. It shows us that he's the rightful son of God, and he comes, as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, hundreds of years earlier, he comes through the line of David. And so he goes through the genealogy, and then he gets really personal in verse 18, and he starts talking about this story from Joseph's perspective. Look at it with me in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. That's the man that was mentioned in Luke 1. But before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind, he had a plan, this is his plan, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But, after he had considered, he pondered, he thought through these things, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Of course he was afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. It's the prophet Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will give him the name Emmanuel, which means he's God with us. We sang that song, Emmanuel, come, Emmanuel, come be with us. It doesn't get any more personal than that. That God would put on flesh and he'd come here and he'd dwell among us, as John tells us, he'd tabernacle, he'd make his home here and he'd know what it is to be tired and hungry, to experience physical pain, to experience emotional pain, to be betrayed, to go through all the things that we go through. That he'd come and he'd be Emmanuel, God with us. See, God's timing is personal. We see it here in Joseph's story, it doesn't get any more personal than this. God's messing with his marriage. God's shaking up his future. You'll see as we go through this passage of Scripture, honor, integrity are very important things to Joseph. And all those things are on the line here. And God's coming in and he's intervening. He's interjecting himself into the story. He's changing things on Joseph. And it doesn't get any more personal than the stuff that God's messing with. And what we'll see, and it's our first point today, is that God's timing is always personal. God's timing is always personal. I just want you to think about a question here. What is it that's personal to you? Am I say the word personal? What are the things that you think of? What things come to mind? What is your personal life? What does that mean that something that would be intimate to you or personal to you? Some of you maybe automatically think of private things to you. It probably doesn't get any more personal than your thoughts. What are some of your thoughts? Dreams, aspirations. Now, this is key for you in this message as we talk about this message. So you've got to answer it for you, and everybody will have a different answer. But what's personal to you? For some of us, our doubts... It's our struggles. It's maybe anger, like the young lady from the worship team prayed. It's anger. Those things are they're personal that you'd be angry, especially angry with God. Maybe it's insecurities. We all have them, some level, some degree. That's different for probably each one of us. But what are your insecurities? What are your private thoughts? What are your lustful thoughts? It doesn't get much more private and personal than sin, does it? You think about what are your personal things? And for some of you, it might be that internal stuff. For others of you, if I say what is personal to you, maybe you think of external things. Maybe you think of your family. That's personal. You know, your, your children, any of the intimate relationships, your spouse, your marriage, somebody you're dating, uh, those things are all personal things. Maybe your finances. If we talk about our personal finances, those are the things. Now, let me ask you the second question. If God were going to try and get your attention... Do you think he's going to reach in and grab a hold of something that's kind of peripheral? You can, it's kind of out. It's important. Or do you think he's going to go and grab a hold of something personal? Maybe shake it up a little bit. If he wants to get your attention, if he wants to do something in your life, he's going to use you in a significant way that you would have never even imagined. 
Do you think he's going to go after something personal, or do you think he's going to go after something that's it's just kind of out there, and it matters? And see, what he does here with Joseph, he does what he always does with his timing. He does something incredibly personal. And he's messing with his marriage. And he's shaking up his future. And he's tweaking how other people will view him. And his honor, his integrity, all those things are on the line. All these things that are incredibly important. Some private, some personal, some more public, but all important to Joseph. And you think about this story from his perspective. Try and imagine what it was like to be Joseph. We talked about last week, Mary, and we talked about how she's this 13-year-old girl, and here's Joseph. He's probably about 18 or 19 years old. He's just proposed to be married to Mary. And we talked about her story and what it was like, and maybe you remember from Luke chapter 1 what her story was like. She's just an everyday girl, maybe below average, living in Nazareth. He lives in the same town. In the middle of nowhere, she's kind of a nobody with not much ahead of her, probably never traveled further than a few miles from her house. And then this angel shows up, and Gabriel comes into her home, and she's troubled. We'd all be troubled. But she's not troubled because he's nine feet tall and has wings and all that other kind of stuff. She's troubled because of what he says. She was troubled at his words. And he said, Mary, you who are highly favored, and she doesn't understand, what does that mean? Who, me? Why me? And then he tells her what he means. He says, you're going to give birth to a son. And he's going to be not just any normal son. He's going to be the one that was promised to come to the line of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He's the promised one. And he will be the king, but not just a king. He's the king of kings. And he will rule and he will reign forever. And with all that overwhelming news, she asked a simple question. How? How is this going to happen? She's kind of practical, tangible. How are you going to do this? And then the angel gives the answer that wipes away all doubts, of course. You know, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the one that's going to be born to you is going to be God's son. Okay, now I got it. That cleared it all up for her, right? Not at all. But she trusted. Remember those words after that? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me. It doesn't, I don't understand what you said. I don't get it, but I trust. I trust what you said. Now you go back and you can read Luke chapter 1, read all of that. Here's an important observation I want you to get. Joseph wasn't there. He didn't see any of that stuff take place. Here's a story from Joseph's perspective. He proposes to Mary. She has to say yes. They've got different customs than we do, and sometimes we don't understand how to arrange marriage and all those types of things work. Well, they become betrothed, and what that simply means, it's like engagement, only they're more committed. They're going to spend a year where they actually function like husband and wife as far as society is concerned. The only way you can end it is through divorce or through death. But they don't live together. They don't consummate the marriage. They never have sexual relations with one another. They spend a year preparing for one another. They spend a year proving their purity and commitment to one another. And so Joseph, he proposes, Mary has to say yes. She has to agree. The woman agrees. He's all excited. And the next thing you know is Mary leaves and goes on a road trip. You read Luke chapter 1, and what happens is as soon as this angel departs, then Mary leaves to go visit her relative, Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant. So from Joseph's perspective, he's watching, he's all excited. Then Mary takes a road trip. She goes away as soon as she says yes. All right, what's going on here? She's gone for about three months. She comes back, she's three months pregnant. How do you feel if you're Joseph? What are your thoughts right now? He's trying to figure out what to do. The text tells us he's a righteous man. He's trying to come up with a plan. He can either have her stoned, according to Deuteronomy, and accuse her on the streets, or he can divorce her. And he decides he's going to divorce her. He's going to put her away. These are his thoughts. In verse 20, it tells us he considered this. He was thinking through this. He was pondering these things. And then God intervenes. This is in verse 20. But as he considers this, and the angel comes, God comes in, and he 
He invades our time and our space because God's timing is always personal. And you think through that through the scripture. I'm saying always, in every situation, if you can find a place in the scripture where God comes into somebody's life and he's going to do something significant and he doesn't do it in a personal way, I would love to see the story. You think, start thinking through the stories. You think through in the Old Testament. Remember there's that woman who's a widow and Elijah comes to her and she's got, got only enough food to feed her and her son, not even a whole meal. It's just one meal for them to split. And then they're going to die. And then the man of God, that's what she's called, she calls him, says, man of God comes to her, Elijah, and on God's behalf, speaking on behalf of God, says, you give me that meal. In other words, you give me your last sustenance. You give me your life. I don't get any more personal than that. She's about to die. Look at Moses, you go up to Moses' life, and there's kind of a cute story we talk about sometimes where his mom put this little baby in the basket, crocodile-infested waters, by the way, puts it in the basket and kind of sends it down the stream, and she had to, she was commanded to, and so she goes to do that in the timing. She's working it out, so this one Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the water. Ever ask yourself this question? Why in the world is there a royal woman bathing in the Nile River? Crocodile-infested, dirty, nasty water? Many scholars believe the reason why she's going down to the water is for a fertility bath. You ever met a woman who wants to be pregnant and she can't get pregnant? It doesn't get a lot more personal than that. And she goes down to the water and why do you think she's so excited when she finds this baby? It's all part of God's plan. Bigger than just them individually, but incredibly personal to them individually. You go in the New Testament, you read John chapter 11. And we talk about tragedy and we talk about death today. You think about what's happened in John chapter 11. Jesus has three friends that are a brother and two sisters, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And this Lazarus, he gets sick. Jesus finds out about it in time to come, to do something about it, to stop it from happening. And you see, when he shows up, Martha and Mary, they both come out individually, and they both say basically the same thing. Where were you, God? You were late. You could have stopped this, and you didn't. If you had just showed up, my brother would still be alive. Now, we're not living that story, so we get to look at it from a different perspective. We're living our story, though. But in that story, we get to back up, and we can see what happened. In John chapter 11, earlier in the passage, before he even goes to see Mary and Martha, we see his conversation with his disciples. In John chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, he says this, So then he told them, the twelve disciples, they weren't understanding what was going on. He's asleep. Oh, he's taking a nap. He's got to get better. No, no, no. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And he knew that before he even went there. Jesus told them plainly he's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. You're glad that he died? No, Jesus weeps. You're glad that people are... No, none of that stuff. But there's something bigger happening so that you may believe. And that's what it's all about. Is to bring people that are yet to know Jesus, that they might believe. He says that you might believe. I want to firm up your belief. I want, to, I want you to know what's going on here, but let us go to him. And then he goes to him, and he shows up, and Mary comes out, Martha comes out, if you had just been here. And then he says some stuff that they don't understand, and they're not getting it then. Just show me where he's buried. Take away the stone. Martha, you can't take away the stone. It's going to stink in there, and it's kind of paraphrased. But that's what ends up happening. And, and Joseph says, or Jesus says, take away the stone. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. This is interesting that he prays this out loud. He says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. I want them to hear me talking to you. This is for them. That they may believe that you sent me. This is why. This is the why. This is why it's happening. 
that they might believe. And then he goes on and he says in this story, an amazing thing happens. He says, come out, Lazarus. Lazarus comes out, raises him from the dead. But what do we see happen there with Mary and Martha and with the widow and with the woman that goes down to the Nile River and with everybody that's happened? This is incredibly personal. Where are Mary and Martha at in this story? That's a dark place. Your brothers just died and you knew that God could have stopped it and he didn't stop it and so why didn't he and the questions that are there and the anger that's there and all the confusion that comes with that and what happens is that God meets them in that place. And God meets us in those dark places. Those difficult times when we have questions. That's incredibly personal stuff. When you're wrestling with God, when you're angry with God, when you want to know why these things happen in, in this situation, and you see where Joseph's at, he's in that kind of place in this passage of Scripture. His marriage is being changed, his reputation's on the line, everything's happening here that's messing with his future, and he's considering what to do, but then God meets him in that place. And we talk about these families in Connecticut. Think about the dark moments they're having today as they sit in church and they listen to these things. And no matter what happens, their kid's not coming back. Five-year-old's gone. And you get angry at the person who did it and some of us will watch the news. And you watch the news, let me tell you something. Even if they know his motive, for sure, and they tell us that, that will not satisfy us. If we keep watching the news and they walk through that school and they show which room he went to first and exactly the plan and who got shot and how and why and why these people and why not these people and how come this and we get all those answers, which I doubt we will, but even if we got it, we wouldn't be satisfied. And so what we do is then we naturally we go to God. Why did you allow and why weren't you here and what about this and did you allow or did you cause? And then there's questions and there's stuff that starts to happen and our hearts and this battle takes place and... And we won't figure it out. And he's doing stuff that we can't understand. And, and he says to us, though, in those moments, he meets us. He says, you come to me. Matthew 11, all who are weary and burdened, you come to me and I'll give your soul rest. I won't give you all the answers. You've got to come you've got to trust me. You come to me, though, and I'll give you rest. And I'll show you what you're to do. And it's easy because I actually want to do work. I want to do the work. I'm the one that does the work through you. Take my yoke upon you. I want to give you rest for your soul. And he meets us in those spots. That's what he does here with Joseph. He comes and he meets him. He's considering these things. It says, but Joseph, her husband, verse 19, he was a righteous man. Let me just pause there. That'll be key to understand in a couple minutes. It says that he's a righteous man. It says that about a few people in Scripture. Job, we see that stated. We see it stated about Noah. But we also see the Scripture says in Isaiah and in Romans, there is no one righteous, no, not one. So what does that mean when it says he's a righteous man? Well, when it says there's no one righteous, not one, that means there's no one who keeps the law perfectly. There's no one who doesn't mess up. There's no one who doesn't sin. We see it other ways stated, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what is it saying here when it says that Joseph was a righteous man? Does it mean he never sinned? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that he's zealous. He's passionate to do the right thing. He wants to do the right thing, and in our context we see, and he even wants to do it in the right way. He's a longing for God. That's the righteousness there. So much so, it's not any self-righteousness, it's a righteousness. And he didn't want to expose her to this public disgrace, and he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But as he's in this place, this dark place, he's considered this, this struggle, this very personal and private place. God shows up. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Now we've talked about up to this, per, like kind of personal circumstances. Now here's a guy that we just saw, verse 19. He's righteous. 
It doesn't get any more personal than talking about sin with someone who wants to be righteous. Because I don't know if you've met people before that you've thought of as righteous. Sometimes when you see people that are, you think of righteousness, you get a bad picture. It doesn't say that he's self-righteous. Now, there are people in Scripture that are described as self-righteous. The Pharisees, different religious people, oftentimes the religious folks that are, are known for knowing all the details of the Scripture, and they portray an idea of, of righteousness. But oftentimes they're self-righteous. Here's the difference between self-righteous person and righteous person. Self-righteous person is usually very aware of everyone else's sin. And they're very aware of the sin that's going on in culture. And they're very aware of all those sins. And they minimize their own sins. That's a characteristic of what we see of people that are self-righteous in Scripture. Here's a righteous person. A righteous person usually very aware of their own sin. They're acutely aware. They're bothered by and aware of their own sin. And the longer you pursue God, the longer you walk with Jesus, let me tell you, the more sensitive you become to your own sin. Jonathan Edwards says this. I read this quote by him this week. He says, Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. But a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. I mean, essentially what he's saying is this. Real Christian, genuine Christian, somebody who's humbly trying to follow God, to live justly, to walk in his mercy, to do those things, is acutely aware of his own heart and the problems that are happening there. His own sin. Let me tell you something. If you're not aware of your sin, you've got more problems than you realize. If your sin doesn't drive you to your knees in humble repentance and confession before God, you've got problems you can't control. And you better cry out to God and beg him to take you to a place where you, you realize that. And to talk about sin to a man like Joseph, it gets no more personal. Forget marriage and future and honor and all that stuff. That, that pales in comparison. You're talking about something that, that's very dear to his heart. He doesn't want any sin in his life. And you're telling me you're going to give me a gift that takes care of my sins and the sins of everybody else? You'll give him the name Jesus because he'll save them, rescue them, pull them out, redeem them from their sins. That's an incredibly personal gift. So not only is his timing personal when he comes into these circumstances, but his gift is incredibly personal. He gives the most personal gift when he gives us a Savior in Jesus Christ. That's why we call him a personal Savior. And you think about gifts that you've been given throughout your lives, and think about what are the best gifts that you've ever been given. And think about it, and it'll be different for different people, but what are the worst gifts? You've, what's the worst gift you've ever received before? And some of you are laughing because the person sitting next to you bought you that gift, so you can't say it. Let's think about the worst gifts you've ever been given. I did some reading this week about some of the worst gifts that have ever been given. So you look at blogs, and you look at comments, and I put it on my Facebook. If you want to see what some of my friends will say their worst gifts are, and you want to check and see if you bought it, and all that kind of stuff, you can go check it out. But I was looking through this, and a lot of times people, it's very individual, it's very personal to them, what it is that's worst. But let me give you some general information, gentlemen. Those of you who have the male gender, and maybe you have a significant other, a wife or a girlfriend, let me give you some tips on things not to buy from the useless reading that I did this week, Okay. Don't buy her a vacuum. That was a repeated theme. I don't care if she asks you to buy her a vacuum. Don't. It's like a test. Don't do it. Okay? Don't, don't buy her something that's actually for you. Okay? Don't buy her tools and say, oh, but honey, I'm going to do a project around the house. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. If you decide to buy her clothes and you don't know her size, guess small. 
Okay, go low. I don't care if it's shoes. I don't care if it's a ring. I don't care what it is you're going to buy. A shirt, it doesn't matter. Buy small. If you want to see a funny one, go to my Facebook page. Okay, there, don't go big on the sizes. Now, a lot of people, just kind of personal stories that they told about their worst gift ever. There was one article that I read that actually had some research behind it, believe it or not, on this topic. And there was a guy, a social researcher named McCrindle. And McCrindle came to the conclusion that the worst gifts that are given for most people's stories are given by coworkers or their boss. And his theory is the reason why those are the worst gifts are because those people have a one-dimensional relationship with you. They only see you in one setting. They only see one range of emotions. They only see one set of desires. They only see one type of way that you'll act and give just mostly because of context. And they're not going to take a risk and buy you something that's overly personal and they don't know those things about you. And so you get the worst gifts from them because they're not very personal gifts. And he says, his conclusion is, the best gifts are usually given, if it's a young child, it's by their parents. If it's uh, someone that's married or dating someone, it's by their spouse or significant other. And the reason is because those people know you the best. Now let me tell you something about the one who gives you this gift of Jesus Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And it's perfect in your life because he knows you so well. I was talking with a friend here at Southbridge this week about a passage of scripture, Psalm 139. It's the first passage that I ever sat down and wrote out in my own words. I don't know if you've ever done that before with scripture, but you sit down and you write a passage of scripture out in your own words. It has a way of internalizing it in your life. Let me tell you what Psalm 139 says as he and I were talking through it. It says this, that that God knew you before you were in your mother's womb. Okay, so he knew you before you knew you. He knew you before you were a twinkling in your mom's eye. That's in Psalm 139. You could look it up. All this stuff is actually, he knew what seat you would sit in today. It says that in Psalm 139. You go and read it yourself. It says that he knew exactly what seat you would sit in, in and he knew you'd be at this church today, in this auditorium, and that you would hear these words. In fact, he knew the thoughts you'd have before I'd say the words that you'd respond to in your own thoughts. So he knows the thoughts you're going to have as you stand up and walk out of here today. Before you have those thoughts, he knows the words you're going to say before they're on your tongue. If you're going to respond to me, he knows what those are. If you're not and you're going to say something to someone next to you, he knows those words before you say them. He knows you intimately. And he gives you an incredibly personal gift when he gives you a personal Savior in Jesus Christ. He says it to Joseph here like this. He says he's going to save his people from their sins. That's incredibly personal. And he goes on and he says this in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. He's talking about the prophet Isaiah. And then the next verse here, verse 23, is actually a quote of Isaiah 7.14, written about 700 years earlier. And now it's happening. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. So something miraculous is going to happen here. A young woman who doesn't have any sexual experience is going to become pregnant, and she's going to give birth to a child, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means that God comes and he dwells among us. That he lives here, that he tabernacles here. He makes this his dwelling place. He, this kind of home base is earth. And he puts on flesh. And he knows what it is to be tired and hungry and to get scratched and to get beaten and to be betrayed and to be abandoned. He knows what that's like from a human experience. It doesn't get any more personal than that because he's God with us. And that's said in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. You continue to read through the context of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, he gives the announcement of this birth. You know, you get a birth announcement, and one of your friends has a child, they'll send you a little flyer in the mailbox, pink bows on their head and all that stuff. Here's a prophetic version of that. It's a Christmas passage we oftentimes talk about. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is going to be the hope of the world? A child? 
a son? And the government will be on his shoulders. All the pressure is going to be on him as he rules and he reigns and he breaks the yoke and he breaks the oppression. Whether that's oppression of other people, whether that's oppression of sin, he will put it on him. That's why he's able to say, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy because he does the work. And he will be called. And then we get four names here. And we don't know anybody that has four names. But we know people that when you talk about their name in the Bible, that it's the essence of their character. It describes who they are. Now, one name wouldn't be adequate for Jesus. And we get these four names that describe the essence of Jesus' character, the gift, the Emmanuel that will be with us. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I just want to take a couple minutes and, and think through these names, these titles, and how personal they are as we think about this personal gift in Jesus. Because a lot of times we talk about titles of God, and we talk about He's the transcendent one, He is holy, and He is righteous, and He's all these things, and we kind of put that stuff out there like it's true about Him, but it doesn't really intersect with my life. But you think about this He's the wonderful counselor, He's my counselor. He's the mighty God, He's fighting on my behalf. He is a powerful God, a divine warrior. He is the Prince of Peace. He brings me peace. He is Everlasting Father. He's not just a Everlasting Father, an Everlasting Father. He's my Father. Our Father, who's in heaven, is a perfect Father. And so you think through these, and how about that first one, Wonderful Counselor? I don't know if you've ever been to a counselor before. I go to a counselor. I remember the first time I went to the counselor. Do you know what he said to me? Not much. (laughs) He didn't know me. He didn't know anything about me. You know, eventually we get to the place where we talk about my sin, we talk about my thoughts, we talk about why I do the things I do, what influences me, what are my temptations. We talk about intimate stuff. And I went to him, I just want to talk to him about life. I want to talk to him about what it was like to be a pastor here. I want to talk to him about what it was like to be a dad. I want to talk to him about just my life in general. But before I could even do that, I had to tell him my story. I tell him my background, my history, and what it was like growing up, and what are the things that have influenced my life, and when did I come to know Jesus, and why is it that I wanted to be a pastor? We had to talk through all that stuff. That took more than one session. You have a counselor who already knows all that stuff. Psalm 139. He knew where you'd sit down today. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knew you before you were in your mother's womb. He knows all that stuff. And why do you go to a counselor? Why do I go to a counselor? I want a counselor to ask me questions I don't think to ask. Give me some direction. Give me some, you know, sometimes speak truth into my life. You have a wonderful counselor. That word wonderful there, Hebrew doesn't have a word for supernatural. The word wonderful is the closest word that the Hebrew language has for supernatural. You have a supernatural counselor. He knows stuff his ways different than your ways. Okay? They're, not as, they're not even close. And he knows stuff about you you don't even know about you. And he knows what's best for you. And how many times do we neglect to even go to him as a counselor? You look at Joseph in this passage of scripture. He's a righteous man. He wants to do what's right. And he's thinking through the situation. And he thinks there's two options. And he's going according to the scriptures. And he says, I've got to have her stoned or I have to divorce her. And apparently he didn't go to the Lord. Because then the Lord intervenes and says, there's another option that he didn't even think of. And how many times do we make our spreadsheets? You know, we've got the pros on this side and the cons on this side. And here's the options. These are the things we can do. And we fail to even consult with a supernatural counselor that we have. He's not just a supernatural counselor. He's my supernatural counselor. He's your supernatural counselor, and you have access to him, and he wants to counsel you. And you know how he counsels? Through the scriptures, and through prayer, and through other Christians, through people. But let me say this. Just because someone's a Christian doesn't mean you should be getting counsel from them. 
Okay, some Christians get some really bad advice sometimes. When I say other people, I'm talking about you're going to people that you believe are going to speak the scriptures into your life. You're going to people that you believe maybe spend time in this and they pray already and they might be able to see things from a different perspective than you see things. Maybe they see the scriptures from a different perspective than you see the scriptures. And so God speaks through. That's how he works as this wonderful counselor is through other people, through prayer, through going through the, to the scriptures and asking him to speak to you. Well, how many times do we neglect that? Especially when things aren't going according to our plan and then we want to do stuff and we're trying to make it work according to our plan and we think he doesn't know better. Where were you? Why weren't you here? And it becomes troubling. Those things don't line up. It becomes troubling. I talked to you last week about me individually struggling with waiting on the Lord sometimes and how my timing for a building, you know, we went through this campaign and all that stuff. We talked about it last week. My timing would be that we'd be in a permanent building yesterday. And, and as we look at what he's doing, it seems like he's saying, you got to wait. Maybe he has a different plan. Maybe he wants to do stuff we didn't even imagine yet. I told you, I was talking to the elders and the leaders in our church, the elder team and the leadership team, and and it wasn't just one guy. It was a theme through our conversations. The, the one thing we know to be true is that we're at a very teachable place. What a huge error if you don't go to the one who has all the answers. The supernatural counselor. Is he going to tell us every detail? Is he going to tell those families in Connecticut right now all the answers and all the details? We couldn't even fathom that if he did. But he's going to call us to himself. He's going to handle the stuff we can't handle, and he will set us on a path because he is a supernatural counselor that gives direction. He's a wonderful counselor. Not only a wonderful counselor, he's a mighty God. That means a divine warrior. It shows his power. It speaks of the essence of his power to talk about him as divine God, the divine warrior, the mighty God. Here we see Jesus, even in the Old Testament, spoken of as both human, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and also divine, the mighty God. And try and illustrate his power. You can think about all the things he does through history, right? He's equal to God. He's just as powerful as God. He parts the Red Sea. That's one we could talk about. He walks on water, feeds 5,000 people with a, you know, some little snack that this kid has, a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. But here's my problem with seeing that stuff. I've never seen it. I read that. I've never seen the water's part. I've never seen anybody walk on water. I've yet to see anybody take a couple bread, pieces of bread and some fish and feed thousands of people. If you've seen that, I would love to tell that story someday. So if you could tell it to me, I will tell it to our church. Or maybe you're crazy. I don't know. But it just seems so far apart from my world that when I hear that stuff, that doesn't really help me grasp his power other than I know he's a lot different than me. But you know what really demonstrates his power to me? Is that he was tempted in every way just as we're tempted, but he didn't sin. Now that's some power. Just think about the ways that you're tempted. Think about what you're, and you talk about personal. What are your greatest temptations? What are the things, uh, these are the ways that you're most drawn in by Satan. And he knows what they are, and God knows what they are, and you know what they are. So it's not like if you don't think about them, they go away. They're there. And he was tempted in every way like that. I heard Charles Spurgeon, I was reading him this week, and he talks about this. He talks about how, how Eve and what she was tempted with, and how Adam and what he was tempted with. Adam was tempted by a woman, just one single woman. And how many great men have fallen because of temptation of a woman? And you look at Eve, and she's tempted by just the one lie that if you just go outside of God's plan, there's more for you. You just got to go for the more. And how many great women have fallen because they want more than what God has for them? Something different. You think that'll be better? It's a lie. And Jesus is tempted with those temptations. Tempted in every way, just as we're tempted. Just see, you see the three that he gets from Satan. We get that one encounter, Matthew chapter four, the pride of life and the lust of the flesh. 
And all those temptations, he's tempted in every way just as we are. He's a divine warrior, though, and he actually wins the battle, that he's a conqueror, that he overcomes that sin. And some of us, you're struggling in sin. He's not just a divine warrior. He's fighting on your behalf. And it's not just that he's fighting like some angels and demons thing that's happening out there. We know all that stuff's happening. We see it in Job. We see it in Ephesians. But he's fighting in your life against your sin. And how many times you struggle, and you struggle in your own flesh, and you try to do it. You don't even go to your divine warrior. He's for you. He's a mighty God for you. And some of you are not struggling. That means that you're submitting. If you're not in the battle, then you're already losing. And those of us that are struggling, none of us have struggled like him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 4 says that, that none of us have struggled to the point of shedding our blood. And he heard every temptation we hear. It's just one night. No one will know. You deserve it. Like all the lines that you hear in your temptation, he knows all that stuff. That your plan's actually better than God's plan? But let this cup pass. There's another way. We can, certainly I can come up with another way, God. If there's another way to the point of shedding blood, and he's victorious, and he fights on your behalf, and that's your warrior, and the battle that he's fighting is against your sin. And not only is he your divine warrior, the text tells us he's an everlasting father. Think about what that means. First of all, he's never going to abandon you. He's there before you, and he's always going to be there. Everlasting. But you talk about that word father, and that's hard for all of us. Especially if you had a bad dad. But anytime we talk about God as father, a lot of times what we do is we put our dad's junk on top of God, and we kind of project that on him. And so the idea of thinking about God as father is difficult. Um, even if you had a really good dad, uh, he was still messed up because he was human. And so any of that stuff you put on God, that's not true. So what does it mean when it talks about God as father? Well, it means a lot of stuff. He's a protector. He's a provider. He gives guidance. Here's the essence of what it means. He cares. Psalm 103 and verse 13 says this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is what that means. Not only does he know your thoughts, not only does he know your temptations, not only does he know your doubts, the facts of Psalm 139, he feels them. He doesn't just know you're going through pain. He feels the pain with you. He cares for you in a way that he identifies with you. And I was talking to my wife last night just about how, how being a dad has caused me to care more. Just because, and for those of you who don't know, I've got four little girls in my house. I'm married to my wife, so there's five women in my life. And I'll, I tell Shannon sometimes, before I met her, I was like a robot as far as emotions are concerned. Okay, things would happen, and I was like, things are happening, but I just keep functioning. You know, it's like there's no tears are going to make me rust. You know, I, I don't know what was going on there, but there's like no emotions there. And I told her the other day, I actually went to tuck our dog in. I was tucking our dog in, okay? That's the first point. Don't miss that. We got this eight-pound little fuzzy dog, and, and I go to tuck him in. I start talking to him in baby talk. It's like, oh, you need a little blanket. And I was like, what's happening to me? What's going on? You know, what's happening is I'm learning to care and have emotions, and they're there. And I learn it through being a father with these little girls. And, and you have a father, and he cares about you. He not only knows about you, it's not just like this fact, he's not up there like working algorithms for human history. He feels what you're feeling. He feels what those families are feeling in Connecticut. He feels what you're feeling and your struggles and your temptations. He knows what it's like. He knows experientially what it's like. He knows the struggle more than you know it. And he cares for you and loves you more than you know. He's not just a father, he's my father. And he's your father. And he's not just a prince of peace. 
That's the last one in the list here. He's my Prince of Peace. And you look at the passage and go, well, Prince of Peace, what does that mean? Well, he rules over peace. He's the administrator of peace. He's the source of peace. And you think about what peace is. Our English language does not do justice to the word peace. You look it up, it'll say things like absence of conflict. There's no fighting taking place. Like, I just want peace with my family. I want to just not fight this Christmas. Or I don't want peace in the world. We just want no more war. It's the absence of war. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom means to make whole. And the idea there is being that there's broken pieces and he takes all the broken pieces and he puts them back together again. And that's how the Lord brings peace. And you think about it in your life and the, and the brokenness and the things that are there, they get shattered together. And what he's doing in his work in your life that he's predestined to happen in your life because he's got a plan for you that's a perfect plan for you is he's putting all the pieces back together to make you whole and to live the life he desires for you to live. And that's why the angels are able to proclaim when Jesus is born, peace on earth. And that's why he's able to say to his disciples when he's about to depart, he's going to send into heaven, here's the deal, this is what I'm going to give you, peace, shalom peace. And I'm going to give you peace, not like the world gives. He not only gives a different kind of peace, he gives it in a different way. It's not fickle, it's not going to come and go. He's like, I give you real peace regardless of the circumstances. That's why it surpasses human understanding. Because people don't understand that how you can be in a difficult circumstance and I can give you peace is because what I'm giving you is my son Jesus Christ. He is peace because he's the prince of peace. He's not just a prince of peace, he's your Prince of Peace, the ruler, administrator, source of your wholeness. And he gives it to you, and the only way you have it is through his son, Jesus. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that means that we've been made right with God, not because we do good stuff, not because we got it together and started going to church, because we have faith in God. And we have peace with God. Many of us don't realize that we're in conflict with God. You're actually fighting against God when you're pursuing your plan. Whenever you're going after sin, when you're submitting to sin, when you're doing things contrary to his desire, you're actually at war with God. But that's made right when you place your faith in Jesus because he's purchased righteousness for you. He paid that debt for you. He's the Prince of Peace, and He's the only way that we can have peace. And so when I talk to you about He's our mighty God, and He's our everlasting Father, and He's a wonderful counselor, and He's the Prince of Peace, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I am not talking to you. Now, you can know Jesus as your Savior right now, but just asking Him to be your Savior, confessing your sin to Him, and submitting your life to Him. But what I'm really talking to are those of you who are believers, and when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't just have all your sins forgiven. That's amazing. That would be enough. You also get a wonderful counselor. You get a, a mighty God, a divine warrior who fights on your behalf. A heavenly father who is your father. I don't care how bad or how good your dad was. You've got a perfect father who cares and he loves for you. And you have a prince, an administrator of peace, who wants to put the pieces back together in your life and make you whole again. Do you know what that means? You can trust him. See, his timing, it's personal. His gift is personal. And his plan can be trusted. And we've talked about this. This has been the application point in every message. So guess what? Next week, the application point will be his plan can be trusted. And this week, you go to our passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, and just like last week, how Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. You see, Joseph, he trusts God's plan. I'll read you the verses. It says in verse 24 and 25. These are the ones we haven't read yet. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. That was God's plan. That wasn't his plan. Remember, his plan was to divorce her quietly for her sake and his reputation. He's not going to condone these things. He doesn't want her to die. He thinks he's doing the best thing that he can possibly do, and God gives him a different option. So that's trusting him. I'm going to go with your plan. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, 
And he gave him the name Jesus. Why? He's going to save his people from their sins. And he's a man. Well, he's God with us. So he trusted. He did what God told him to do. And that's great for Joseph. But Joseph knew what God wanted him to do. What about you? Isn't that the tension? Isn't that the frustration? I, but if I just knew what he wanted me to do, then I would do that. It's like I was talking with my daughter the other night and put her to bed. She's been struggling with being uh, scared at night. And so she gets up and she gets in her sister's bed. Her sister doesn't want her in her bed. So it doesn't work well, okay? And I'm telling her, so I'm tucking her in. I was like, just stay in your bed tonight. Your sister doesn't want you over there. Just, just stay right here. But I'm scared. And we talk about what she's scared about. And I said, you just need to trust God. And there's this verse that we've taught our kids. Psalms 56, verse 3, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And they know it so well, it's like a chant. Like I can say, when I'm afraid, and they'll say back, I will trust in God. So I say, when you are afraid, she says back to me, I will trust in God. And then she says, what does that even mean? <laughs> it's late, honey. You know, kind of slide out. Tough questions. I don't want that. Well, it means something different in her circumstance than it does in your circumstance. In her circumstance, it means this. You're actually afraid of things that are so far beyond your control that you don't even need to be thinking about those. Here's what you need to do. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first God and his kingdom, and he'll take care of all those details, okay? And that's the answer for her. I don't know the answer for you. I don't know what it is that you need to trust God with. I don't know your story. And even if I knew all of your stories, and we did like a Q&A, like popcorn, here, tweet them in, and I'll tell you the answers. And I'm not the wonderful counselor. But you have one that is. He's a supernatural counselor, and he knows the answer to everything. And he wants to give you counsel, and he wants to give you direction, and he knows everything that's happening. And you know what else? Some of you, it's not that you need counsel. It's that you're in a struggle with sin. But you have a divine warrior who wants to fight that battle for you. Some of you got questions, and you got doubts, and you're in a dark place, and you need to know, does he even care? And you've got a father who cares for you. Some of you, you're just broken, and you don't know how the pieces are going to be put together. You need the Prince of Peace to come and do that for you. And today we're going to conclude in a different way than usually. We're definitely going to tie this all up and put a bow on it and all that kind of stuff, make it real nice like a sitcom. We're not going to do that today. You might have stuff you need to talk to the Lord about. Some of you need to approach him as a counselor. And I want you to go to him as your counselor today. And some of you, you may need to approach him as your divine warrior. You're struggling with sin and you're losing the battle and you need to talk to him as the mighty God. And some of you, you just need to talk to your daddy. You need to talk to your father. You need to... Know that he cares, and so ask him. Ask him to show up. Ask him to make his presence known. Ask him what he wants to speak to you, and maybe you be quiet. Some of you need a prince of peace. That's why I challenge you to approach him. as one of those four things. We're going to spend a couple moments in prayer. Just bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'll begin us in some prayer, and the worship team will come. They'll play some music, and the music they'll play is really just so that with coughing and moving around and all that stuff, that doesn't distract you. And I just want you to spend a few moments talking to the wonderful counselor, to the mighty God, to the everlasting father, to the prince of peace. It's one of those four things. He is Emmanuel. He is with us in this moment, at this space, in theater 14, theater 9. He is here. So let's talk to him. Our heavenly father, mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. Will you supernaturally speak into our lives right now as we speak to you? I pray on behalf of my friends. Uh, family members, uh, those that I love, those that are guests, each one that's here, that they will be able to come to you with things that are very personal and that you would speak to us. And go ahead and spend a few moments speaking to him and I'll come and I'll wrap our prayer time up in just a couple minutes.